you have your Bibles, we'll be in, in Genesis 9, as you just heard from Melody this morning. We're talking about the covenants of the Bible. And, and I grew up playing basketball at Cook Inlet Academy. I've got some of my teammates here this morning uh, in attendance. Uh, our biggest rivals, they will tell you, were the Nilnilchik Wolverines. Uh, my, <laughs> and we have some from Nilnilchik here. Just wait, Rana. i got a story for you. So my senior year, uh, we lost to them in the region title game. It gets better. Uh, we won't name names, but one, somebody on our team missed the free throw, and I'll never forgive whatever his name was, Luke, I think. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, I'm very over that. I'm over it. It's totally fine. Um, but we, we both, Nidalchik and Cook Inlet, advanced to the state tournament, and as fate would have it, we played each other again in the state final. In Rana, there was a different outcome. <laughs> we didn't squander our second chance that the good Lord had given us. We had a second chance against Danilchik, and in double overtime, we emerged victorious. And the icing on the cake, not only were we state champions, but it was against our foes, the Danilchik Wolverines. Praise Jesus. Now, I can't lie to you that still to this day, when I drive by Danilchik High School on the way to Homer, that's what you do in Danilchik, you drive by Danilchik, uh, a little smile still kind of corners up on the edges of my mouth when I pass the Wolverines' den. Uh, we all love a second chance, right? We, we all, we, we love being given second chances. Sometimes we're not as good at giving them as we are receiving them. And, and we wrestle with, you know, when do we give someone a, a second chance? How, how many times does the unfaithful spouse get a second chance? How many times does, does the person in prison for some of the deepest seated, ugliest crimes be given a second chance? And, and then in our own lives, uh, how many times will the Lord give us a, a second chance when we blow it over and, and over again? We're talking about second chances in our story this morning. Uh, we're walking through uh, what we are calling the unfolding promise. This is the Bible story of God's rescue plan for mankind. And uh, what we're seeing, we said that this is story is sort of like a fuzzy picture. That at the beginning, you, you can't really see very clearly what the picture looks like, what God's rescue plan is going to be. But as we go through this story over the course of the fall, we're going to see the fuzzy image become clearer and clearer. We said in our first week that God established this covenant with, with Adam and Eve right out of the gates in creation. We said that God created us, according to Genesis 1, for three things. Number one, he created us for right relationship with him. Our creator, we are to relate with him as his sons and daughters. We said number two, he's called us to rule under him, that he has placed us on this earth as his representatives to rule and reign, subdue and have dominion over the rest of creation. And then finally, we're invited into restful worship of him, to trust that God is in control, in control and to trust his wisdom and his provision for our lives. And what do we see right out of the gates? That how quickly Adam and Eve in the garden, they completely uh, blow it. That they disobediently eat the fruit, the one command they had been given. And sin fractures this relationship. Or as Ross said last week, reversed it. That we were called to relate with God and, and yet we, our relationship with him is broken. That we were called to rule under him, but we rebelled against that call. And Adam and Eve chose not to rest in his wisdom and his provision, but to decide for themselves what was right and wrong. Provide for themselves. And they failed God as image bearers. And this week, we're going to see in the covenant with Noah, God give mankind a second chance. They lost to the Nanilchik wolverines in the garden. Will they be able to defeat them this next time around? Spoiler, no. 
But the pixelated picture of God's rescue plan is going to get clearer and clearer, and we'll see that today. So we're, we're on a search and rescue. We're on search for a rescuer, I should say, a snake crusher. If you remember last week, Ross pointed us to Genesis 3.15. In the midst of God cursing mankind for their sin, we see a little dim ray of hope. He gives him a promise, and it's in this weird language about the seed of a woman and the seed of a serpent, and he says that the seed of the woman, a child, is going to crush the head or strike the head of the seed of this serpent. There's an allusion to the rescue of, from sin and death and, and Satan in, right here in the garden. So now we're on this search for this snake crusher. And what happens in Genesis chapter 4? Well, Adam and Eve have a child, and his name is Cain. Now, in their minds, they're going, the seed of the woman is going to rescue us. So they're probably thinking, is Cain the rescuer? the firstborn son. And what do we see very quickly? Is Cain the one who will bring life, give life to mankind? No, in fact, he's one. The first son takes the life of the second son. He is not a life giver. He's a life taker. This is not the snake crusher. And so from here, the world's population grows and as with it, uh, with it so, does, so does sin. And we get to Genesis chapter 6. If you're reading along in, in your version, we're going to have the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, on the screen. Uh, it's a really strong translation, a good blend of word by word and phrase by phrase. Uh, so we're going to use that this morning as a reference. He says this, The Lord, verse 5 of chapter 6 in Genesis, The Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Verse 12, every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. So there's evil, not just in, in mankind, but on the entire world, all of creation. What do we see God call us to, Adam and Eve to, in the garden? He said, go and make the rest of the world like Eden. Make it a sacred place where my name is worshipped and glorified, where I'm obeyed, where I am trusted. To, to fill the world with, with image bearers who relate with me rightly, relate with each other rightly, and relate with creation rightly. But instead, what do we see here? We see the world. Adam would have been still alive at this time. And what we see is the world is filled with, with corruption and violence and, and injustice. They've devalued God, their maker, and devalued the image makers, the image bearers that he made, and, and the rest of creation as well. And so then God says something pretty alarming uh, in, in verse 7. He says, Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. I have decided, verse 13, to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Now, you say, wait a second, God can't do this, right? He would break his covenant. What did God promise in the garden? I'm going to send a snake crusher to defeat uh, evil and bring you life. God can't rescue mankind if there's no more mankind. He can't wipe everybody off the earth and, and, and save them. You can't kill them and save them, God. What are you doing? Well, entering onto the scene is a man named Noah. Verse 8, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And he had fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we see here that, that there is this, this man uh, who, who seems to be pretty good, right? His resume looks good. It looks like we're, we're, we're going to, Cain failed, but we're going to continue the snake crushing tryouts and we'll give Noah a go, right? Lift and stump, lift and stump. And we're going to see if he's the guy who can defeat sin and, and death for mankind. 
But there's a hint here in, in, in the way that he finds uh, standing with God. Look at verse 8. It says, Noah found favor with God. This is the first time the word grace is used in our Bibles. It gives us a hint that it's not uh, ultimately Noah's own right standing that makes God choose him. So we're going to see here God's solution is going to be a new beginning. And we're going to see, we're going to hear a lot of language that we heard at the beginning uh, just a few chapters ago in creation. First of all, we're going to see an uncreation. The flood story is really the creation story in reverse. The, the water, remember on day three, what happened? God separated the water from the land. As he separated the waters, dry land emerged. And what we're going to see on, on, uh, in the flood is actually a reversal of that. The waters go back over that land. And in the process, what, what happened on the subsequent days? Life appeared on those lands, plants and animals and humans. And what happens in the flood? The life is taken from those plants and animals and humans. And what do we see at the end of it? There's nothing but darkness over the face of deep waters. And this is the exact thing that we see on the second verse of the Bible. It says the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. We are back to pre-creation, we are back to darkness before God had said, let there be light. And the light, just like that, the light and life of the world are gone, right? Not quite. What does Genesis 8 say? God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God preserves this one man and his family and a representative, uh, two representatives at least, of each of the land animals on, on the ark. And what do we see then happen? Now we just saw uncreation language and now we're going to hear recreation language. Remember back in Genesis 1-2, it says the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. We're going to hear a very similar thing here in Genesis 8. God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. This word for wind is actually the same Hebrew word as spirit. It's the word ruach. You get some phlegm in the back of your throat and you'll say it right. Ruach, spirit and wind. So spirit or a wind hovering over the face of the waters. And before what happens? The water recedes in Genesis 8. That we see once again appearing as the waters are separated, land and out of the ark, what re-emerges on the land where the plants are regrowing, but more humans and animals? We hear a creation story, a new beginning, a second chance. And just like God started with one man, Adam, so here we start with Noah and his offspring. Noah is represented here as the new Adam. And in Genesis 9, we hear very similar language in God's covenant with Noah that we hear with God's covenant with Adam. He, he says to Noah right out of the chute uh, and to his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the same exact thing he said in Genesis 1.28 to Adam. Fill the earth with image bearers. Now the point here is God is saying, my purposes will stand. I created humankind to bear my image, to rule underneath me. And that will happen. That will come to fruition. And my promises to make that happen will be standing just as sure as my purposes. I'm going to start over with you, Noah. But we're going to see a few modifications because we're living in a fallen world now. So let's look at the terms of the covenant. I just want to remind you so that we're not plagiarizing. Some of these ideas and, and our outlines coming from God's kingdom through God's covenant. A great book by Gentry and Wellam. If you follow along with that, get a copy. Uh, it's been very helpful in organizing our thoughts that we see in the Bible and it's covenant. 
covenants. So we see a couple, four, four terms here in the covenant. Number one, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now again, this is the exact same language that we see in, in Genesis 1. But then we see a deviation from this. Number two, the next term, animals will fear humans. Animals will fear humans. Verse two, the fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on earth. Every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, they are placed under your uh, authority. Now, this is interesting. God instills a fear of humans into animals. Remember, they're li we're living in a fallen world now, and all the creation is corrupt under the curse. Now, I love hiking. One of the scariest things of hiking, of course, your nightmare would be seeing a big grizzly bear. Now, we're told, and I still I don't want to test this theory, but we're told that the bear is more afraid of us than we are of it. Okay? So here I've come marching through the woods with my little bear bell, and I'm supposed to be scaring the bear? Like the bear and I have a stare down, and the bear runs off for me? That bear's a moron, right? <laughs> have you seen my teeth compared to his teeth? Have you seen his claws compared to my little sausage fingers, right? Like in a showdown, we know who should be the one soiling themselves. But in the midst of this, we see the bear is the one that's more afraid. Thank you, Lord, for Genesis 9, verse 2, right? And so I'm sure that's the main reason, right, it was for, so that I could hike. That's why this term is here. So number three, animals now are given to humans as food. Animals are given to humans as food. Verse 3, every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. So really the, the heart of this one is that we can now eat meat lovers pizza, right? And all God's bacon lovers said, hallelujah, right? Man, now he, he says you can eat the meat, but there is one restriction that he puts on the eating of that meat. And he says, don't eat meat with life, with the blood still in it. Verse four, however, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. Now he's going to get more specific as to why in, in a moment. But what we see here is he said the life is in the blood, the life blood. He's associating life with blood. The last term that he puts here is that human life is sacred. It's sacred. That, that word means to be set apart, connected with God. It's, it's holy. There's something significant about human life in God's eyes, that he, he sees it as priceless. It's special to him. It has infinite value and worth. And so he puts a second restriction on this killing of animals. He says, you cannot kill other humans, not that animal. Verse 5, and I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I'll require it from any animal and from any human. So whether a human takes an, a human's life or an animal takes a human's life. If someone murders a fellow human, I'll require that person's life. So uh, this is preventing, it's putting a caveat no, against murdering a fellow human, also against eating another human. So cannibalism's off the table. Hopefully that doesn't ruin any of your picnic plans this week. Um, I was camping this summer with our community group. Here's a bear licking its lips, wanted to eat Josiah, who probably is delicious, to be fair. And this, this, uh, this bear, this little black bear, bit our camp host while we were there, gnawed on his foot for a little bit. And what they, they knew, okay, something's got to happen to this bear, right? So they call a fishing game, they call the troopers, and they're hunting this bear down, trying to put it down. Why? Because they, they know that an animal who is a threat to human life needs to be taken care of. And what we see here, remember, this world is now full of evil and violence. People are killing each other. They're devaluing each other in the image-bearing nature that we are given. And so this shows us how God is going to try to prevent everything from going exactly back to the way that it was. God says those who take life will have life taken from them. And we see God's design for justice. And it's in seed form here. And God is not calling on personal vengeance. 
So if someone was to kill my brother, that doesn't mean I just go out like Robin Hood or Batman and take them down and kill them myself. We're going to see his, his institution of human government, that, that human government is here to restrain evil, especially when it comes to taking each other's lives. Now, but notice here, why is it that we can kill uh, animals and eat them now, but not fellow humans? Well, he explains, he reminds us of his created intent in verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. Why? Here's, what, here's why. For God made humans in his image. And just like in the garden, he is saying, I, human life is sacred to me. I have created humans and humans alone in my image. And he's separating them from the lives of the animals around them. I love the way Russell Moore says it. He says, the taking of human life is an assault on the image of God. The taking of another's life is an assault on the image of God. And then he re reiterates the mandate that he gave in verse 1, in verse 7. But you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply it. What God is telling Noah and his family is, you're to go out and create life not to destroy it. You're to be one to give new life, not to take it from others. You're here to multiply my image on earth, not to eliminate it. Now we're always, as we read scripture, we need to let it read us. And so we need to ask ourselves, well, was he trying to teach me out of this? Now, I don't know how many of you um, were planning on murdering somebody this week. Um, and, and that maybe some ways you go, okay, not murdering. That's an easy, finally, there's an easy commandment from God that I can follow, right? Hopefully some of you. If not, we have some phone calls to make. Um, but Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, it gets to the heart of, of where murder comes from. He says, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. So he says, essentially, when you take someone's else, as, someone else's life, you're taking the life and dignity of an image bearer. But he says, that's not actually where the seed of that, uh, that sin starts. So he walks us down a path. So I want you to imagine for a moment somebody who has hurt you. Uh, and, and how do we respond when someone hurts us? There's a right way and a wrong way. And he says, to start off on the wrong path, he says, verse 22, I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So anger starts the path. Now, we know anger in itself is not evil, right? There's a righteous anger when, when something's done wrong. That's actually the heart of God. But what we see here is that you can take a wrong course with that anger. In your anger, do not sin. Because here's what often happens. He says, whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. So oftentimes, I'm angry at the person who hurt me, and I will start to insult their character. I start to question their character. And you know where this mostly happens, right? It starts in my head. I start thinking these devaluing thoughts about them in my head, and then I'll, I'll be pretty willing to talk about them behind their back. And then maybe I'll even say some of those things to their face. I question their character, but then I go from questioning their character to questioning their worth as a person. He finishes up by saying, whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. This word, this phrase, you fool, is, the, he, is their word for racha. Again, we got more going on here. Racha. It, meant, it basically, I mean, literally meant you good for nothing. You good for, it's this idea of contempt. It was a harsh language, that in the, a harsh word that in the original language would have been, would have been bleeped out. And really, this is, we would say we, we're treating someone with contempt. The idea of contempt is to say, you are below my consideration. You are worthless as a human. And Jen Wilkins says that's really what murder is. That contempt is, is it takes, it, it's, it's contempt to the point that you believe another image bearer is so worthless that they don't even deserve to live. And then we act on it. So the question uh, that we want to ask ourselves in our hearts is who are we showing contempt to? 
Who's the, who's the person that comes to mind that you, that you recognize in your heart, that you're harboring anger toward? You have been tearing them down in your mind, behind their back, maybe even to their face, and starting to consider them unworthy of life. Instead, what we're called here is to see every, every, every man and woman as priceless image bearers of God. Because what happens is when we show contempt to an image bearer, who are we really show contempt to? The one whose image they bear. So he, he lays out the terms of the covenant. And then he's going to make a promise. Remember, the working definition we have of a covenant is, is thus, uh, a chosen relationship or partnership in which two parties make binding promises, highlighting that part of it, to each other and work together to reach a common goal. So God makes promises uh, of loyalty to mankind in this covenant. And here's the specific wording of the covenant with Noah and, and, and creation. It says, verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. So it's kind of a specific uh, promise here. I will never wipe out the entire world with a flood again. So what's going on behind that? One of the things that's crucial is to back up to, to the end of chapter 8. Melody read this verse for us. said, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. And here's the important part even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. Do you see what he's saying? Even though these eight humans that survived through the flood, their, their human condition, it's going to remain the same. They're, Noah and his family is not like, okay, lesson learned. We're going to nail it on our second chance. We'll beat him at state. That's not what happens. And this is what's so important about this covenant in particular is that the covenant that God makes with Noah is unconditional, which means there are no conditions, no ifs, buts, or ors in this. This is, this is, completely, um, this is completely dependent on God's faithfulness. There's no fine print. God is not saying if the next generation nails their chance, then I won't flood your faces again. What, what he's saying here is there are no conditions. Four times we hear in this language, my covenant, my covenant, my covenant, my covenant. And, and what's he he's saying? God is saying, I am obligating myself. I am binding myself to maintain this covenant in spite of human failure. I love the way that Gentry and Wellam say it. God would be completely justified sending a flood every generation. We look around at our generation today. God would be right to flood this generation. He says there's only one reason why he doesn't do so, his own mercy and grace toward us. And here's why God's covenant with Noah is so important to us. For the rest of human history, as this picture gets clearer, God is set in this, this firm stage where over generation and generation and generation, we can know that God will keep his promise to rescue mankind from this fallen world no matter how many times we blow it. That is good news. That's the promise that he makes. I'm not going to wipe them out again with a flood. But then he's going to give a sign. Sign of the covenant. Verse 12. This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations, not just your generation, Noah, not just your sons and daughters' generations, but forever and ever. He says, verse 13, I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, notice in the CSB, and it's the same as the ESV, a lot of the translations, some of them say rainbow, but this version just says bow. There actually is no Hebrew word for rainbow. The word they're using here for bow is the exact same word that they would use for the archer's tool, the weapon, 
of a bow and an arrow. And what's interesting to note here, I love the way Warren Austin Gage says it, the, the bow is a weapon of war. It's an emblem of wrath. God will now set it in the heavens as a token of his grace. God is saying, I'm going to lay down my weapon of war. And this bow in the sky is a, is a physical reminder that I will never again use this weapon of water to destroy the earth. Now what's interesting, if, if, we, if, we, if we have this imagery of a bow, so if the rainbow is an, actu- is an archer's bow, which way, if you put an arrow into the bow, which way is the arrow pointing? It's pointing up, right? If, if you were to stick an arrow in that bow, it's pointing upward. So what's the significance of that? God is saying, the next time that I send worldwide judgment for the sins of mankind, it is not going to be mankind who will receive the arrow. It is not mankind who will be pierced. That God says the arrow is pointing upward, and I'm going to take the arrow myself. And we hear the whispers of, of this arrow shot upward in Isaiah when he says that Jesus, the, the coming snake crusher, he was pierced for our rebellion. That man continues to rebel, but this time God's going to take the wrath. And this sign, this promise in the clouds remains a witness for us today. That we think about this, the next time we see the rainbow, imagine that arrow that's pointing upward. We redeem this sign that has been co-opted by the world today, hasn't it? There's a day coming. In Micah 4, there's this beautiful picture, this prophecy that the, he says our swords will be turned into plowshares. So there will be no war, war. There will be cultivation of life. This is that eternal Sabbath rest that we said in week one, right? The first six days had time markers. Day, day seven, well, that was the intended completion. That's what the world is heading toward. And don't we need to be reminded of that promise today? Don't we need to be reminded as we look around and see a world, a world full of corruption, as almost seems like almost every week we see another church leader who has fallen As we look around and we see the death and destruction and violence as we pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, that we see the division that is just ripping the church apart from the inside throughout this pandemic, that we can know that there's a day coming. And when we look at that bow in the sky, we are reminded that no matter how many times every generation gets it wrong, that our God will be faithful. And what we see here at the end of the story takes a sordid turn. So we're going to see over and over again in the story is another failed snake crusher. So Noah, who is the second Adam, he's given a second chance. He's going to nail it this time, right? Surely he's going to learn from Adam, right? He's not going to make the same mistakes, right? Well, it turns out that the sin was not just outside of the ark. Sin was just as alive and well inside of the ark. And what we see is a second creation, and we also see a second fall. If you look at Genesis, the end of Genesis chapter 9, we're going to hear very intentional parallels between Genesis 3 and the fall of man and what happens next. So look with me at Genesis 9:18. Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Note that one. These three were Noah's sons, and from the, them the whole earth was populated. Noah, as a man of the soil, began planting a vineyard. So what do we have here? Another Adam in another garden. And it says, verse 21, he drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. We see more failure involving fruit and the temptation of it. And it leads to more exposure and nakedness. 
Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his brothers, two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both their shoulders, and walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. Isn't it awesome the way these passages always line up with Family Sunday? So, so good. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. So once again, we're back in a garden and a failure with fruit and temptation. Sin brings nakedness, exposes shame. That nakedness, as the other two sons cover their father's nakedness, the sin is, and shame is covered by another, the way that God covered Adam and Eve in the garden. And what does this sin result in? A curse. And not just a curse on the father, but a curse that is extended as the sin is extended to the son, to Ham and his descendants of Canaan. There's a lot going on here, and we don't know if it's just simply that, that, that Ham saw his father naked or if maybe there was something more deviant going on here, and this is kind of a euphemism. But here's the point. Sin is still there. Brokenness is still there. Family dysfunction and rebellion is still there. And the point is that once again, just like with Adam and Eve, Noah fails miserably as a keeper of his end of the covenant. And that we're going to see time and time again in the story that the only way that the covenants are going to be fulfilled is based on God and his faithfulness and grace and mercy, not man's, mankind's ability to be faithful. I mean, the reason, that, one of the reasons the story of Noah is so encouraging to me is to remember that my hope is not ultimately in my own ability to get it right on the second chance or the third chance or the fifth chance or the 95th chance. God is always a faithful covenant partner. And our hope is not in who we are, but in who he is. Paul says in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, really we can say when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. He says, this is who I am. I didn't just keep a covenant. I am a covenant keeper. I'm not just showing grace. I am grace. I'm not just showing mercy. I am merciful. God is Love. Listen, brothers and sisters, our hope is not in a second chance. I think of this, it, it, salvation is not an etch-a-sketch where God says, all right, give me the picture of a perfect human. So we're working on our life and go, and I show it to God. It's like, nope. He shakes it up and he goes, now do it again and this time get it right. Salvation is just not, a, not just a new start in hopes that this time we won't make the same mistakes as the last time. It's something deeper and more profound. Because I can witness this in my own life. I've etched many sketches. And every time, it does not bear the image of God correctly. That I'll say, God, if you would just forgive me. God, if you would just give me one more chance. And I promise, I covenant that this time I'll do it right. Well, what do we see every time? We blow it again, right? Again, Gentry and Wellam, they, they say it so good. The, the, the covenant with God, with Noah, is instructive because it shows that being given a fresh start and a clean slate is not a sufficient remedy for the human pl plight. This is more than just a, a, a reboot. There's this beautiful poem at the end of, of chapter 8 that reminds Noah, he says, as I replay the creation story, I'm going to bring back the rhythms of day and night and seasons. And he says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. I will not snuff out the light with dark again. And it reminds me of the, the song that we sing, one of my favorites. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, 
sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature, including that bow we see in the sky, with all manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Great is thy faithfulness. And that our stability, our assurance that tomorrow the sun will come up again, our assurance that this summer will turn into fall as we see the mornings getting colder, and that fall will turn into winter, back into spring, and, and summer yet again, our, our stability, our firm foundation is not, oh good, the earth is tilted on the right ax part of its axis. Or it's not just that, oh, this time I'm going to nail it. We're going to be able to take care of this earth the right way and preserve it. That our stability is based on who our God is. And that God's purposes in the garden will stand. And that he will create the kind of people, a kingdom of priests who bear his image and likeness, who have right relationship with him, that, that do treat each other the way that he's called us to treat us, that, that we will rule this world one day in the way that he is intended, and that we will finally one day, just like in heaven, see his will done here on earth and trust him and his wisdom and his provision. But what we needed for that was not just for a, a, a snake crusher to come from humanity, we needed a snake crusher that came outside of humanity. And this is where, as always, we see the text point us to Jesus. Jesus is the true snake crusher. And just like that fuzzy image of the, 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 the rescuers becoming clearer here, we want to notice some of the patterns that this, these covenant imageries are, are portraying. And, and one of these, if we look in the flood, what do we see? There's one way to be saved. If, if anybody was going to be saved in the flood, they had to be in, Adam's, or in, in the new Adam, Noah's family, right? It had to be a part of that covenant family. And it was on that ark, there was one way, through the floodwaters of death would come life, the preservation. And what was that life symbolized by in our story? He saw that, he said, that the life is in the blood. It's blood. And what we see in, in these stories, we already see these whispers teased out. Remember back in the garden, when Adam and Eve tried to cover their own sin, pay for it their own way, God denied that and said, no, I'm going to cover you, I will provide the covering and so he, 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 he covers them in animal skins. What does that imply? The shed blood of an animal, an innocent, the, the animal didn't sin, Adam and Eve did. And that animal's blood is shed, an innocent animal's blood is shed for Adam and Eve to cover their sins. There's a whisper there. And we see that again here in the garden. Noah, likewise, could not please God on his own. But look at what it says in, in, in Genesis 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So once again, Noah sacrificing animals, the shed blood of an animal, to be offered to God. And, and look at God's response. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said, I'll never curse the ground again because they're human beings. Once again, God is pleased by the shed blood of an animal. And when you and I see blood, when we have this visceral reaction to it, don't we? Why? Because we see that life is being spilled. When we see blood, we should realize and remember how sacred life is and how shed blood is necessary to cover sin. Because, of course, Noah was not the snake crusher. That he was not the, the better Adam. That Jesus, ultimately, is the true and better Noah. And, and for us today, too, there is one way to be saved, and that is to be included in the family of the last Adam. It's the only way to be saved. And through the death waters of judgment will come life. 
But unlike Noah, who had to receive grace from God, undeserved favor with God, Jesus was truly righteous. And it was the shed blood of the innocent sacrificial lamb that was a pleasing aroma and a sufficient covering for our sin. This is what Ephesians 5 says. Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. This is life from death. And brothers and sisters, this is not just a new start for life. Jesus gave us more than a second chance. Jesus Christ gave us a new source of life. He said, it's just not you shaking up the Etch-A-Sketch and trying to get it right this time. I'm actually going to give you new life, my life. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And it's now with Jesus' life coursing through my veins that I'm able to finally be the kind of human that God intended me to be in the beginning. And we're reminded here is Jesus absorbs the, the arrow of judgment from God's bow. He didn't just do that to cover our sins, but to give us a new way of life, a new example for us. So we think about those people in our lives that we, we want to devalue and take their life through contempt and, 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 and through murder eventually. How are we to see them? Well, we see them as God sees them. We're to forgive those who have wronged us. And, and how many times should we forgive? Jesus used the language 70 times 7, which was basically a way of saying over and over and over again. We forgive them no matter how many times they blow it. And how do we forgive? As we've been forgiven. This is what he calls us to in Ephesians 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. How? Just as God also forgave you in Christ. He calls us to this new kind of humanity, the kind of humanity he created us for in the beginning, where we do not take life, we do not devalue life, we do not show contempt for life, we forgive, we restore, and we preach the good news of the lifeblood of Jesus that was shed for others, that we would glorify the one whose image we bear. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for the life of Jesus that was spilled out for us so that we may have life. And Lord, we think about our own call. Our hope is only in Jesus and in his promise. Noah's only hope was that God would spare him. But he had to listen and trust and obey. That there was one way. That was to do an absurd thing, to build an ark, to do something that had never been done before, and to trust God's word and to take this leap of faith and build a boat in a world that had never needed a boat. And Father, we know that today you're calling us to do something crazy trust you with our lives, that you actually say it's from death that we live, that we completely surrender, that the way that we keep our life, Jesus said, is to give it up and actually enter into the floodwaters of judgment, symbolized by baptism, and through that death, we would find life in Jesus. Father, would we be a people who don't put our hope in second chances, but put our hope in this new life source that we have in us, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. Father, if there's somebody here today that needs to release the anger and contempt and bitterness they've been holding on toward another person, today in Jesus, they would find the ability to let that go and to see that person the way you see them. That doesn't mean there's not cases where there needs to be boundaries and there needs to be a no. That does mean that in our hearts, we need to value them the way that you value them and that we would forgive as we've been forgiven and rejoice in the one who took the arrow from us. That's the only firm foundation that we have to know that the sun is coming up tomorrow. The seasons will continue on through eternity. It's in the name of our loyal, sacrificial, sweet-smelling aroma of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.